And with the new year, we're starting a new book on my turns to teach. We're going to be in a new book of the Bible. We're switching from the New Testament where we've been, and we're flipping back. We're going back in time and space. We're going back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and I do think it's a good idea. My preference, frankly, is to teach out of the New Testament, but it's a good balance for us to get both. And so we're going back to the Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of Daniel Daniel's a good book for us to study at any time like any other books of the Bible. The funny thing is I think that one book's less important than another until I start reading it. And then I'm encouraged again how rich it is and how much good stuff there really is in those boring or hard to read or hard to understand books like Numbers or Zephaniah or whatever. Daniel is a great book and a few of the reasons why I think it's particularly appropriate for us now It has very important lessons, some of which are prophetic. In fact, Daniel in some ways has some of the most important because they're the most specific prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's from the book of Daniel that we have the most specific timeline given in the scriptures for what God's program on the earth is. And in the days that we live in with all the furor and debate and death and conflict going on in the Middle East, both in Israel itself as as, uh, well as the larger eastern area. These are the areas that were the world powers and kingdoms of the time and the day when Daniel lived and wrote. And things are coming full circle, and we see the world stage and the focus of the world being put back on this part of the world again. So Daniel is... The issues of Daniel are relevant for us again today. Prophetically, they deal with Israel with the nations in that area. Also, one of the things you'll see as we go through is, besides the prophecy issues, which are interesting and and helpful in lots of good ways, you got these really practical lessons about character issues, about pride and humility, about what what those kinds of issues mean between us and God. We've got things like ethics in our business uh, in the book of Daniel. Daniel's book is probably one of the best books to read, maybe along with Proverbs, for someone who's in business or just conducting your affairs throughout life. The book of Daniel is a key book for that as well. So important messages. It's relevant because of the prophetic issues and the events going on in the world today. If you read various commentaries, there's general consensus on most things. uh, On the theme for the book of Daniel, that's my pick. This is my opinion and some others differ, but... My pick for theme of the book is twofold. The first is that God is in control. God is in control. We'll see throughout the book. The second ties to it, and it is that God delivers those who belong to him. So God is in control, and he delivers those who belong to him. The key verse, in my opinion, my humble opinion here, is Daniel 7:27. At the end of an important prophetic passage, this is the conclusion. It says, Then the sovereignty... The dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That is, in the final analysis, it's the holy ones, the saints, those who belong to God, who are given rule. They're not only delivered, but they're given rule And it's God's kingdom that supersedes, crushes, puts aside, sets down 
overwhelms and takes over from every other kingdom on the earth. So God is in control, and he delivers those who belong to him. Daniel's an easy book in some ways to teach through, isn't it, Jess? And to look through, 12 chapters. Uh, As far as the way this is pieced together, cut it in half and cut it in half again, and you've got the major divisions of the book. Chapters 1 through 6, Daniel and his friends interact with the kings of Babylon and then Medo-Persia, the the kingdom that follows after them. And in chapters 1 to 3, crisis and deliverance for Daniel and his friends in each of these three chapters. Do you remember Daniel uh, doesn't eat the king's food? He's delivered from that. In chapter 2, Daniel and the rest of the prophets or the important uh, decision makers in Babylon are saved when God gives Daniel the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then chapter 3, the fiery furnace. Great story. Uh, Daniel's friends are saved from judgment from the furnace. Chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6, along this same line, but in each of these chapters we see God judging the Gentiles who oppose him. So he judges Nebuchadnezzar. He judges his descendant, uh, what's his name? Belshazzar. And then he judges the people who try and destroy Daniel. So he judges in all those. So Daniel and his friends with the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia in the first six chapters. In the second six chapters, 7 through 12, This is spread out a little bit more. It's a little more rambling. We leave the story elements behind and we really dive into the prophetic issues. So those those six chapters are Daniel's visions of the future. And they're they're also divided in half. Chapters 7 through 9, you see the kingdoms of the world depicted in... Hi, Frank, come on in. You've got the kingdoms of the world depicted as these animals or beasts in chapters 7, 8, and 9. Uh, God foretells the future and the kingdoms of the world, and it's interesting. Early in the book, he compares the kingdoms of the world to a statue and to metals, and then later, they're animals. They're animals that rise out of this swirling sea of humanity. And in the last three chapters, we've got really one long or lengthy prophetic vision. Chapter 10 kind of sets it up, and chapters 11 and 12 give a lengthy prophetic vision about these coming world empires. So... It's an easy book to study through. Because of that, it lends itself to giving us some some easy things to remember. Uh, The book of Daniel, just to set the stage, and I confess this morning I I told my wife, uh, I hate doing teachings like this on one level. I love to have just the text and a short text that I can get my hands around in one morning. And what we're doing this morning is introducing a book, 12 chapters, and so we're talking about some generalities as we go in the future and we take a chapter at a time, we'll be able to, to be a little more specific. But a little harder to get our hands around a whole book at a time, but that's what we're doing. To historically set this up, the book of Daniel takes place from about 605 to 535, or those are round numbers thereabouts. And just to set the stage, remember that you've got King David's about 1000 B.C. Uh, first, uh, maybe we could say important king. He followed Saul of Israel. And the nation of Israel is established under King David. Then his son Solomon expands it. But under Solomon's unwise son, the nation is divided in half. And now what was one nation, we've got two. Israel up in the north, Judah in the south. God interacts with both kingdoms over the next couple hundred years. 
And like always, they disobey. They don't follow God's law, the law of Moses. And so he told them, if you don't do this, you're going to be judged. And Israel in the north is judged in 722. When the Assyrians come in, they conquer the northern kingdom and they take these folks away. They scatter them. So the northern kingdom's gone. Well, a little over 100 years later, 605, Judah is going to go into captivity. And it's 605, basically Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, they're the new world power. They come over and Judah, the southern kingdom, submits. And as a wise politician, what Nebuchadnezzar does is he leaves the city. He doesn't destroy it, but what he does is he takes all the key leaders. So he takes the nobility, the king, the upper level politicians, because he wants to remove enough leadership that the folks that are going to be left behind aren't going to be likely to foment a rebellion or a revolt. So Daniel is one of these guys who's taken captive early in 605. And so he's writing from Babylon. His life, not sure how old he is when he's taken captive, but with the rest of this early group, he's taken from Jerusalem, Judah, and goes to Babylon. They're going to be there 70 long years, and so Daniel's life and this book is all going to be written as an exile in a foreign land under a foreign king. And it's going to be still repeat this thing that God is in control when it doesn't look like he is and that he's still going to deliver his own. Now, God had said that this is what was going to happen. And listen to Jeremiah 25 concerning this captivity and what happens to them. God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send, I'll take all the families of the north, and I'll send to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations around. This whole land will be a desolation. It'll be a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So God had said, and Jeremiah lives through this period. Jeremiah lives through 605 B.C. So he wrote just before this happened, he says, you're going to be taken captive and it's going to last 70 years. Get used to the idea. So it's written in exile. It's written during a trying time. Let me just read this. It's interesting that it's in this time and under these conditions when life looked out of control and God's promises of blessing appeared to have been buried in the rubble of Jerusalem that God gave his chosen people and us outstanding promises of his benevolent control and his commitment to bless and deliver his people. In other words, these encouraging messages come at a time when they really needed to hear them, and hopefully we do too. Well, let's look at this issue about God being in control out of Daniel. If you've got your Bible, feel free to turn there. We're going to look at a few specific verses along the way here. The first one's out of Daniel chapter 2, concerning God being in control. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream about a statue, and he didn't know what to make of it. And Daniel gave him the dream and the interpretation. Along that line, he said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It's he, it's this God who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream and the interpretation. It's he who changes the times and the epochs, the timetables of history. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. 
It's he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Now remember, in this day, there in Babylon, this is, uh, this is bigger than the United States, so to speak, if you put this in perspective. Babylon rules the world. And it's not a democracy or a republic, and they don't vote for their leader. The king has the power of life and death. The king appears to be the ultimate and the sovereign power. And in light of this, Daniel stands up to the king of kings on the earth. Remember, he's got lots of vassal kings under him that rule these other provinces for him. And in his name, Daniel says to the king of kings, it's God who sets up kings. It's God who gives power or takes power. You're not ultimately in control, King Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who rules in the affairs of men. Later in chapter 4, God warns Nebuchadnezzar of judgment if he proudly exalts himself. And we talked about pride being one of the issues that we'll see in the book of Daniel. And during this warning phase, God says, This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. This, this warning was that Nebuchadnezzar was like a great tree, and this tree would be cut down. And Daniel tells them that what this means is, if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't honor God as the source of true power and his power, then Nebuchadnezzar's pride, Nebuchadnezzar, would be cut down like a tree. And he says, the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know... This prophecy is given. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar about this so that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. He sets over it the lowliest. I find this one interesting. You know, sometimes you will see people in positions of power or authority and you'll think, why in the world are they there? There's nothing special about them. They might be vile. They may be lousy at their job. And they'll still be in a position of power or authority. Well, Daniel says God sets sometimes over nations, over the world, the lowliest, the vilest, the basest of men. He's in control. Now, in the same chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is judged, and he's made like this animal. And he goes around eating grass. He loses his mind. This king of kings, this dread ruler of all the earth, he's reduced to the state of an animal. He loses his natural sense of things. And I believe it's for seven long years, he goes around like a critter, eating grass. His, his hair grows long. His nails grow long. One of the commentaries I read on this said that a, a guy had actually seen a person just like this at an asylum in England. And he said the guy was perfectly healthy. He was amazed because it was a living illustration of Nebuchadnezzar. This sounds uh, off-key for sure, uh, but this particular author, R.K. Harrison, had actually seen a person just like this. Loses his mind totally. After seven years, God gives him his sanity back. And this is what he says. At the end of the period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes towards heaven. My reason returned. And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever. Why? Well, his dominion, 
not mine. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven up above and among the inhabitants of earth where we live. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? What have you done? How dare you do this? Whatever, however you want to phrase it, Nebuchadnezzar, when he regains his senses, his conclusion is to say, God is in control. I am not. God is in control. And even though I, Nebuchadnezzar, have the most power of any man on the earth, I realize that power actually belongs to God. It's not inherent in me or in you. Later on in Daniel 5, there's so many good Bible stories out of Daniel. You know, you've got the fiery furnace. And in Daniel 5, you've got the hand that comes out of the cup and writes on the wall. And in regard to the hand and the wall, Daniel comes out to Belshazzar. He's a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, not his son. I can't remember if it's his grandson or great-grandson or grandnephew or something along that line. But he reminds Belshazzar about the past. Belshazzar has taken the instruments from the temple in Jerusalem and he's had them at his feast and he's praised, it says, the gods of wood and gold and silver, his idols. And it's in that setting that the hand comes out of the cup and writes on the wall. And so when Daniel comes out, this wise man from Judah, to tell Belshazzar what this means, he says, if I can find my place here, he reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar in his pride was driven away from mankind, Daniel 5.21. His heart was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until, or for the purpose, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and he sets over it whomever he wishes. He sets over it whomever he wishes. Uh, sometimes it's easy to forget. You know, God calls Christians to submit to those in authority. And sometimes we look at the authority and we say they're really not worth respecting or submitting to. But, you know, you put that command in Romans in perspective. It was written under the rule of Rome and probably the Caesar Nero was the controlling uh, Caesar during this period. And Paul says, submit to those in authority. You think of Daniel, and here are Jews who are commanded to, to worship no one but the living God, who ideally would be living in Jerusalem under their king. And it's in this setting that they're reminded that it's God who sets up those who are in authority. It was because of this that sometimes when Jeremiah got up and preached and he said, you're going into exile... There were false prophets who stood up and said, oh, no, you're not going. God's going to bless you and he's going to keep you here. They wanted to believe that. It was hard to take that they would be judged and that they would be put under a foreign power, a pagan king. This was hard to believe. But it's in that context that God tells Daniel and tells the Jews and tells us that it's God who ordains authority. Sometimes he gives us the kind of leaders we deserve, frankly. Sometimes he puts in hostile leadership to purge his people. But he is sovereignly, he's in control. 
So when we see presidents or dictators, when we read the stories in the scriptures or when we read today's headlines, God still says, whoever, whatever human agency we see, they're not the end of authority or power. They serve at God's pleasure and at his discretion. It's God who sets up those who are in authority. The end of the book of Job, Job says, to sum up this portion, he says, Of God, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the God that we know and serve. That's the God with, with whom we have to do. Uh, I know for myself in the last week, my life at times has felt totally out of control. And all of us face times when we, we either don't know what's going on, uh, situations are such that we wish we could change them and we can't. Uh, sometimes there's trouble, there's chaos. We, we'd like to change things, make them different, make them better. And we realize we can't. The power is not inherently in us to do those things. But you know the God that you know, if you know Christ, the God that you know and serve is the God who has all power. And because we know he's benevolent, Because he's given us his son, Jesus hasn't withheld the choicest thing he could ever give anyone. Paul says in Romans 8 that he won't withhold any good thing from us. So even when you or I feel like our life is out of control, God says he is still in control. God, the benevolent Savior King that we belong to, says he's still in control. We can entrust ourselves in those situations, in those dilemmas to him. God, I know you're in control. God, help me in this situation. Along with this thought that he's in control generally, Daniel also brings up this whole issue that he he doesn't just control the here and now, but he controls tomorrow, and he controls next year, and he controls the next millennium from Daniel's perspective, doesn't he? Because he's going to control all of history. So he doesn't just control the here and now, he controls the future. Listen to Daniel 2, verse 44. Daniel says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. No other kingdom is going to come in and, and set this one aside. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but will itself endure forever. This is God telling us, telling Daniel, what the future holds. He's not just saying, I look in a crystal ball and I can foretell what events will happen. He not only knows them, but he controls them. So his control isn't just a kind that's on the present only. It's a control that reaches out or reaches in, we might say, from eternity into time and controls it all. So the present's under his control, the future's under his control. It's interesting that if you read liberal scholars concerning the book of Daniel, some totally reject this book as an authentic product of God's hand. And the reason it's rejected is because they read it and say the prophecies of this book are too specific to have been known beforehand. Because Daniel claims to have written this in the 500s, but it describes events that are going to take place really probably up until, uh, let's say, around 160 B.C. So it predicts events for the next few hundred years. Some of these prophecies are uh, 
outstandingly specific. And so liberal scholars say, well, you know what? We believe Daniel didn't write this prophetically in the 500s. A pseudo-Daniel, someone claiming to be a Daniel, really wrote this around 100 to 200 B.C. And he sat down and he wrote history as if it was prophecy. But it's a sham. It really isn't. You know, if that's true, then you've got to throw out a bunch of the Scripture. You know, you start in Genesis 3 with the prophecy of a Messiah and a Savior. That, that wouldn't be taking place for thousands of years. But God specifically says it's going to happen. God says he knows and controls the future. It's no wonder, it's not a big deal if he then tells his people what he's going to do or what's going to happen. This isn't difficult for him. We shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, uh, in Isaiah, which I'll just comment on for a moment, in Isaiah, God says that it's the ability to accurately, and accurately is the key word here, accurately foretell the future that is a sign of deity. So listen to Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's no one like me. And when he describes himself, this is what he says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been, been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good purpose. God says, I'm God. The reason you can be assured of that is because I can tell you from ancient times what will happen in the distant future. I can tell you today what's going to happen tomorrow and next year. That's a sign of my deity. God says through Isaiah to Israel's idols in Isaiah 41, he says, declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know you are gods. If you're really gods, then declare the future. Tell us what will happen outside of the current time. Tell us about tomorrow and next week and next year. If you're God, you should be able to do that. And then in Isaiah 44, he says, Who is like me? Let them declare to them the things that are coming. God says only God can foretell the future. Only God is in control of the future. So for me, and probably for you too, if I'm tempted to worry about uh, my income next month or my job next year or the car I drive next year, my career, my future spouse... I mean, the, uh, the list is endless, isn't it? All the things that aren't here yet, they're out in the future. We don't control the future, and we tend to worry about it. And the book of Daniel reminds us that God doesn't just control the here and now. He controls the future. He determines the conditions of the future. There's nothing in this world that he doesn't either cause or allow. He's in full control. And so whether it's the situation or the circumstances you're in right now, or if it's the issues that you face, some known or some unknown in the future, God says he's the one in control of it all. And the lesson for us in that is we should entrust ourselves to him. He has power today. He has control of tomorrow. And we should entrust ourselves to him. And along that last point, the last point I want to make this morning is God delivers those who belong to him. God delivers his own. You've got these great stories, and I'll read just a couple of verses about them, but here's Daniel 
He belongs to a foreign, aggressive king, king who's ruling the world at that time. King can do whatever he pleases. And will, in, within the course of Daniel's life and Daniel's friends' lives, they're going to be faced with uh, terrifying possibilities depending on how they choose to live here. And it's in light of these choices they face that we get this lesson out of Daniel that God delivers those who belong to him. Now, the big picture here, too, is that God had told them that he would deliver them from Babylon. He had said, if you disobey, I'm going to send you into foreign nations and you'll be disciplined. But you'll come back. And one of the great passages out of the Old Testament that should give us hope, out of Jeremiah 29 commenting on this period of judgment when they go to Babylon. This is what God says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah is in Judah. I'm going to bring you back after this captivity. And then God says, because I know the plans that I have for you, I'm going to discipline you now. You're facing 70 years of discipline, but I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then, when this period of discipline's over, then you'll call upon me and you'll come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll restore your fortunes. I'll gather you from the nations and from the places where I've driven you. I'll bring you back to the place from where I sent you to exile. Even when God disciplines them, he tells them beforehand, my plans for you are still good. This discipline, this time of judgment isn't the end. It's a period in which I'm going to accomplish something in your lives and then I'm going to bring you back and my plans for you for good will be accomplished. In Daniel chapter 3, when Daniel's friends are saved from the fiery furnace. This is a story that most kids know, even if they don't know anything else in the Bible, the fiery furnace, Daniel and the fi- or Daniel's friends and the fiery furnace. Uh, just think for a minute, when we're saying God delivers his own, just think for a minute. You know, when the king has this idol set up and he commands everybody to bow down to it, and Daniel's friends choose not to, and... Again, it's easy to read a story or hear a kid's what's, what sounds like a kid's story and uh, not really put yourself there. But imagine that there's a, a room full, if you will, of people or a stadium full of people and everyone bows down except you. What's it going to cost you? You're going to stand out. Your disobedience is going to stand out. And their disobedience is in the face of a mighty king who does not hesitate to do bad things to people that don't do what he says. And so when they stand, when they're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives them this opportunity, okay, here we go, here's your last chance, bow down, they say, their response to him is, our God can deliver us. We know the God we serve, we know what he can do, but even if he doesn't, We won't bow down to your gods. We won't bow down to your idols. We're going to remain faithful whatever the cost to us is. We will remain faithful. So we know the end of the story, but they didn't. 
And they saw the furnace heated up. And they understood that they were going to be thrown alive and burned. And their response was, we know God can deliver us. We're not sure what he's going to do. But regardless of what kind of deliverance he gives us, deliverance through death or deliverance through life, we're still going to honor him. And God honors them because of that and does deliver them. And it's interesting, too, that when they're thrown into the fire, do you remember the story that the king says, didn't we throw three men in? But there's four. And that one, that fourth, he looks like a son of man. In other words, they were willing to face death. And in this trial, in this ordeal, God personally meets with them in the ordeal, in the fire. Their their bonds are burned off. And it says they're walking about unhurt. And they come out. God delivers them. And this is what it says at the end of the story. It says, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. There's no other God who's able to deliver in this way. By contrast, a thought comes to mind. Uh, We support Voice of the Martyrs, a Christian group that helps Christians around the world who are in persecuted areas. I don't know if you've read this story. Uh, Vermbrand, the, the guy who started this group, was in Romania when uh, the communists came in. And there was a stadium event in which the Christian church had been assembled to pledge allegiance to the new <coughs> communist government. And one after another of these pastors had gone up and pledged allegiance to the new government. Now, we're talking about governments being established by God. There's nothing wrong with obeying the government. But they were pledging to submit the church of Jesus Christ to the government of the atheist communists. And Wormbrand was in the stadium. He was an important pastor, and he's there with his wife. And he has to go up on stage. And I can't remember exactly what she said to him. She said, you've got to say something. He says, you know, if I do, I'll be in prison. Excuse me. And uh, so he, he tells them that uh, it's Christ that heads the church, not the government. And he goes to prison for about 15 to 20 years. He's tortured badly for the next two decades. But uh, he wasn't delivered, you know, out of the, uh, the, uh, the pain or the cost. It was real. It didn't, God didn't come in like in Daniel. But Wormbrand said, whether I'm delivered or not, I know who I belong to and I know who I'll serve. And it he, was when he was delivered later out of prison that he came to the United States and started this, this organization that just tries to support the Christians in parts of the world where it costs something to stand up and say, I'm a Christian, just like our pastor friend in China today. So they said, our God can deliver us, but whether he does or not, whether we die in the furnace and are delivered or whether he delivers us physically, we're going to serve him. And the king says, there's no other God like your God who can deliver like this. There's no other power on earth that can deliver like this. 
in Daniel 6. This is one of the other great stories all the kids know. Daniel in the lion's den. My dad, my dad, who was raised Roman Catholic, knew very little about the Bible, but he knew a little song, a little ditty about Daniel in the lion's den. Did you know that Daniel was a dentist and he pulled the lion's teeth? Yeah, that's it. It's not in, it's not in the scripture, but it's in that story someplace. Yeah, anyway. Okay, so Daniel's thrown in the lion's den again. Same setting as Daniel's friends. He's, there's a command. You're not to pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. It was a trap. Daniel's faithful. What does he keep doing? He keeps praying to the living God that he belongs to. He knows that it may cost him, and it does. And so he's brought before the king, and, and what happens? You're going to, sorry, the king's sympathetic. The king doesn't want to destroy his friend and counselor, Daniel. But he has to throw him in the den of lions. And the next morning, Daniel, did your God save you? You can imagine. If there's no response, it's obvious. Daniel, did your God save you? Daniel spoke to the king and said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. you got these great stories in Daniel that show that people that belonged to him, they didn't know that God would deliver them, but God came in and delivered them physically from the things, the judgments they faced then. And that's one of the key themes of the book. God delivers those who belong to him. I'll close this part with a quote out of Malachi, last book of the Bible, encouraging note to end the Old Testament on. But concerning a future day for Malachi of judgment, God judging the earth, this is what Malachi said, for God, they will be mine, those who have trusted me, those who know me, it says, God says, they'll be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession and I'll spare them. I'll deliver them in this time of judgment as a man spares his own son who serves him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, this day of judgment when God cleans house. And all the arrogant, every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. A day of judgment and destruction is coming, and God's the author of it. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. So the same time period, the same judgment that means destruction for some means salvation and deliverance for others. God says he'll deliver those who are his own. (coughs) Daniel is a great, great uh, not only Old Testament book, but book in general. I'm looking forward to, to going through it a chapter at a time. We'll get into it in a little bit more depth. But in case there's any question, step outside Daniel for just a minute. I'll quote two short passages. Daniel talks about this kingdom that was going to come and it was going to destroy every kingdom that came before it. In fact, it says it would crush them as fine as powder that the wind would blow away so that there's nothing left in the end but this one kingdom. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, starting at verse 24. He says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, all earthly rule, power, and authority. 
For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all and in all. The end of history, the end of the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, the end of uh, communism, the end of socialism, the end of democracy, republican, whatever you want to say, the end is that King Jesus sets up his kingdom and in the end turns it over to his Father, it says, so that God may be all and in all. That's how the story ends. Paul says it a little different in Philippians 2. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's the end of the story. That's our ultimate deliverance. It's ruling with King Jesus in the kingdom he sets up and establishes that rules and reigns forever and ever. Rules on the earth and then rules through eternity. That's the promise every Christian has. Ultimate deliverance. No matter what happens to us in life, we know where we're going. We know who we belong to. We know what our future is. So that if God lets hard things happen to you and I in life, it's still okay. We know where we're going. We know who we belong to. We know how the story ends. We also know that the one who is in control is benevolent. We belong to him. We're his sons, Malachi says, his children, his daughters. He loves us. He didn't spare Jesus in order to redeem us. And he promises that our future is with him forever. I can live with that one. All of us experience situations where we have things that are simply outside our control, sometimes hard things. And, you know, in light of Daniel, one of the things we can do is this theme is, recurs that they entrusted themselves to God. They entrusted themselves to God. When you need deliverance, when you need help, when you're in situations you can't get out of, entrust yourself to God. He not only has the power, but he delivers those who are on who are his own. Uh, People like our friend here, Pastor Gong, are facing the Daniel kind of incidents even today. And this isn't, this is China we're talking about, but this is true in, in parts of Africa today, if you're a Christian, the persecution that you face. Um, This is true in the Philippines now, where Islam, uh, uh, forceful conversions, uh, your life is, uh, Uh, threatened if you don't convert. These things are going on today. This isn't just a couple thousand years ago. These are real incidents in the book of Daniel that are being uh, relived. Same kinds of things today. On smaller scales, probably, you and I face conflicts. We face dilemmas. We face things that are bigger than us that we can't control and get out of. And when we face those, instead of feeling put out, full of anxiety and fear... Daniel's a reminder to entrust ourselves to the living God who loves us and has all power and will bring out all things in a way that pleases him and blesses us. So we can hang our hat on that. Well, let's pray to close. Lord, thanks that you don't just have power, but that you are benevolent. 
that you are a God who kindly and humbly reaches down and serves our best interests. Lord, we are faced, each one of us, with a multitude of things in our life that are difficult, that are trying. Lord, we're tempted in those situations to sometimes either deny you or do things our own way to get out of the trial or the trouble. But, Lord, help us, like Daniel and his friends, to choose to remain faithful to you, to entrust ourselves to you, to wait for your deliverance, whatever that looks like. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to a God who has all power and loves us and gave us his Son to redeem us. Lord, I just think of the the verse in Romans that if you didn't withhold Jesus, you won't withhold any good thing. Help us to fix our faith fully and entirely on you now and on your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.